Hello, and welcome back to the Faith Seeking Understanding podcast. I'm Roland, this is Matt, and we are continuing our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes. So, in the previous episode, we saw that Kohelet is sort of restarting his project or, or starting the second stage of his project where he's put to one side the persona of the king who's trying to find happiness and being better off. And he's instead um, kind uh, accepted this idea of happiness as that I like to call joyful toil in the fear of the Lord or the fear of God, right? Mm. Just like we recognize that God's in control, we're not. So we, we rightly fear him. Um, and we um, look for happiness in trusting in him to f- give us enjoyment in the toil that we have. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we don't try and make ourselves better off. You know, you're always welcome to do that. But it's about where we seek our happiness, how we think happiness should um, work itself out. Um, so he introduced that new stage, that that outlook, which he thinks is superior uh, in the in the last chapter, in chapter three. And now from chapter four to the end, he's going to retread his steps that he tread through in chapter two um, and show, you know, bring more examples to bear of Hevel that go against the, the, the aim of being better off. Hmm. And also in the course of that, discuss um, aspects like you know, reaffirm um, his proposal and discuss other aspects of how the good elements, you know, ha- the like part of the good elements of how we enjoy, how we are supposed to enjoy toil and think about toil in our in our time, as mm-hmm. he says. Yeah. So that's where we go. Um, and I think at this point, actually, the idea that we stumbled upon in Proverbs, where we spoke about how Proverbs are polysemous, 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 um, is very key to understanding what he's doing here because he does the same thing. He's, he basically now, instead of, um, he's he's had these like long sort of diatribes, I guess, or these long discourses up until this point. But from this point of the book, he basically just moves from one vignette to the next. Mm. Um, and the idea that we're supposed to come away with, I think, is we're supposed to see how these things all connect um, in, in that they highlight the failure of a particular way and uh, different um, ways of uh, a particular form of Hevel manifesting itself. So the the form of Hevel, uh, well, so the way of life we're looking at in four to six is the person who follows the desires of their heart. So they want to get better off by following the desires of their heart. Mm. And the particular form of uh, Hevel that we saw is what what we could call unrest, that no matter how often you pursue the aims of your heart, there's always going to be something missing. You're never going to be fully satisfied with that. Uh, and how, you know, all the different ways that this could uh, this could go. So, I if we... Yeah. Maybe just before yeah, yeah. we move on, I think yeah. it's maybe just worth saying something about um, sort of, I guess, revisiting the idea of Hevel. Mm. Um, that when we say that it kind of comes with... What do you say about unrest? What was the link that you drew there? Hevel, the the way that Hevel manifests itself is in the form of unrest. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, I guess the the question that I'd I'd want to ask there is that in, in the episode on Hevel that we when we looked at Hevel um, in some detail, mm-hmm. one of the things that we were noticing is that there are some interpreters out there who say, well, Hevel. Um, can't be defined well can't be translated with one word mm-hmm. because it has so many different um, 
situations that I was trying to describe. Um, and I think you can start to appreciate some of that when we get to a place like chapter four, where you've actually got a whole lot of, um, we start to see the, the you said the, the vignettes and the, like a whole lot of different stories that are all sort of just placed back to back. You can sort of see why somebody might want to come to that. Well, Hevel's being used to describe this situation, which is different to that situation, which is different to this other one again. I think though, that what we came to in that episode was that Hevel means something like, or primarily comes with connotations of something that's elusive. Yeah. So how are we seeing this? Uh, the way uh, that you sorry. were just um, talking about it there just got me thinking, well, that actually might sound like what we're saying is that it does have these different usages, which in chapters four to six is unrest. But yeah. I don't think that's quite what we're saying. No. Oh, uh, yeah, sorry. I, it wouldn't be a, a... Well, so in this particular case, right, um, we're saying that he so happiness, the person, so the way that this works itself out in unrest is the person who wants to follow his heart gets to something that his heart wants. Mm. And then when he finally gets there, he realizes it's not what he wants. He wants something else. Right. Right. And so now he goes off to the next thing and he goes off to the next thing. And so happiness, if he's thinking that this is going to be happiness, is eluding him, right? Right. Um, and the reason, like the, I guess maybe not the reason, but the way that it manifests itself is that he's never finding rest because his heart keeps moving somewhere else. Right. Yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. So I mean, what would, how would you frame that? I don't... Well, I, I mean, I'm just thinking again about um, our discussion on the meaning of Hevel mm -hmm. and, and how that fits into the way that Hevel is um, portrayed. Um, in, in some parts of the book, that a key um, clue for what we're going to do with the meaning of Hevel. Mm -hmm. I mean, we mentioned in, in that first episode that Hevel um, isn't used in Ecclesiastes for the first time. That actually, it's a um, it's got established meanings through the through the rest of the Hebrew Bible, and actually several of them. Mm -hmm. So, which of those, if any, or if um, Kohelet is bringing a slightly different nuance to this word? Um, when he says it right up front in verse one, verse two, hevel, hevel, everything is hevel, everything's utterly hevel. What connotations he's bringing to that have yet to be seen. Mm. Um, if that means that it's insubstantial, or that it's um, fleeting, um, or that it's elusive, we, we're still we're still waiting to find out. And I think an important clue there is in the very next verse where he says, "What profit is there for a person in all mm. their pursuits? That whatever profit there is to be found." What he's, I think, shows quite well through the course of the book is that whatever profit you think it, there is to be found ends up slipping through your fingers, mm -hmm. um, or perhaps you couldn't even grasp it in the first place. Mm. Um, so it's the benefit that our pursuits sort of hold out um, that turns out to be Hevel. Um, and I think okay. the way that you explain it now, I think um, I'm seeing a little bit more um, I'm seeing a little bit better how that fits with the idea of unrest. That actually, um, if we're chasing after happiness, if we're chasing after profit, to use Kohelet's word, um, and it just keeps slipping through our fingers, you can see how that would generate a sense of unrest. Mm -hmm. That you keep, like, instead of just um, taking a step back and like, okay, that's obviously not the way that I'm going to do things. Instead, we've got this picture here of somebody who's like, well, then I'm going to keep trying. Yeah. Or yeah, totally. um, then I'm going to keep working to outdo my neighbor. See, he'll say in um, uh, chapter four. Um, 
Wait, does he say? Uh, 4 verse 4. 4 verse 4. Then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Yeah, this yeah. also is heavily in the striving after wind. Yeah. Cool. Well, that might, yeah. That okay. sits a bit better cool. with me. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, so I think the one of the things we should probably do is just go through some of the vignettes that he raises and show how they fit within this theme of um, following one's heart and how, you know, reality gets in the way of that. And then we can even articulate, like, the particular form of unrest that we're seeing at work here, if it's not obvious. Mm. Um, just to show that everything from four to six does fit within this this theme, this 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 idea of reality, that he is in fact going back to it and and exploring it. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, so let, let's look at that. So, I mean, in the, just to go over these things briefly, we're not going to comment on like the nuances of individual vignettes, but in chapter four, we have, he starts out with the idea of all oppression and this idea of oppression and no, um, no one to comfort the oppressed or no one to comfort the oppressors because presumably hurt people hurt people. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, that's an obvious case, right? That's like probably the most extreme counterexample to the fact that happiness can be found in pursuing the desires of your heart is that like the vast majority of people aren't wealthy enough or aren't in aren't secure enough uh, to even try doing that. They're trying to just live moment to moment, often under oppressive regimes. And so like, are you saying, are we going to say that none of those people have access to happiness? Mm. Really? Yeah. Like, I mean, they're deeply un in unrest, right? I mean, that's, we call this like civil unrest for a reason. Like they're, yeah. they're looking for just a reprieve from this, right? So we have yeah. the same idea there. Then we, the example you gave of toiling after your neighbor, that's a pretty clear example of that. Mm. Um, in fact, this the four to six is probably like a little section of its own where he, this is something he often does, where he gives one extreme and he gives the other extreme, both of which are crazy. And then he kind of recommends a middle road, right? So he's saying, well, you can either toil after your neighbor and then that's just gonna, you're never gonna get there, right? The grass is always gonna be green on the other side. Or you could just do nothing and then have to eat your own flesh, right? You won't have any food because you're not toiling. Right. So. But in, I actually read that one a little bit differently. Oh, okay. So cool. the word there for um, uh, flesh eating, um, <laughs> <laughs> that word could also just mean meat. Okay. So some somebody sits, oh, eats his own meat, sits at home and eats his steak. Yeah. Okay. And it doesn't have to be self cannibalism. <laughs> but why why is he a fool then? Um, well, so you've got the fool who. Um, clasps his hand and eats his meat. And I guess the what seems to be suggested, particularly um, from the verse before, is that there's this level of exertion that comes with that. Um, and if we remember what Kohelet had to say in chapter two, um, the pursuit of um, the pursuit of wealth or the pursuit of, you know, it was in the context of, of by means of his wisdom, but still, um, it comes with a whole lot of stress. It comes with like, well, then you can't sleep at night because you're just worrying about what you've okay. got. You're just worrying about your things. Um, there, there seems to be this level of exertion that doesn't seem to pay off. And so you've got the fool who is so adamantly holding on to, like he, he clasps his hand to eat his, to eat his meat. Actually, better off a palm full of calm than a handful of oh, business. He's like, he's like trying to make it pleasurable. He's like trying to force himself to take pleasure in it. Yeah, yeah, and and the business that that is um, is uh, that he's so desperately um, trying to hold on to amounts to the inclination of the wind. Mm -hmm. It's um, the wind that's sort of going 
to and fro, off on its own mission. That's the way that Kohelet often seems to talk about the wind over the course of, of, um, of the book. It's not something that he has ultimate control over anyway. Mm, it's mm. up to the, the forces, that, you know, the powers that be, maybe the oppression that he was talking about at the beginning of the chapter, mm-hmm. that mean that, try as he might, actually forces out of his control very well might wrest this away from him. So rather than cling so hard to your business and, and put all your eggs in that basket, you know, better upon with calm. Mm, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, Open your hand, chill out a bit. I had always read it as... Um, I'm pursuing my I'm pursuing my neighbor and but I'm not getting anywhere because he's always just got the next thing. Yeah. So I'm not, so then I'm like okay well maybe I'm a passionless person and I don't pursue him. Yeah. And I just yeah. fold my hands. I refuse to do any work. Right? That's sort of the understanding I had of folding his hands. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um and so then I you know I'll run out of food at some point. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, I mean it is worth saying that the vast majority of commentators and scholars have gone with that view. Oh, okay. it's, it's But there is a possible other reading that you yeah. yeah, this opposite perspective that's being offered. Okay. Um, the reading that I just but I think in both now I think um, yeah. it was I owe that one to Stuart Weeks. He's um, okay. He's the the one I got it from. But I think in both just, in both cases, verse six way. is sort of like a an alternative to these two things, right? He's saying offering he's the powerful to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it just coheres a little bit better to say well, um, he's not you. You don't have to sort of. Um, working really hard, being lazy, and back in verse six, working really hard again. Oh, <laughs> uh, so work in, in my understanding of verse six would be like, you're working, but you don't have, um, you're not overworking. So yeah, but the, says, the second half of the verse, a handful of business. So mine says better is a handful of quietness. Yes. Than two hand, than two hands full of toil. Yeah. So the toil is what I'm saying. Yeah. So that, that, that would be a lot more like that sounds more like the determination and uh, okay, working okay. really hard in verse four than. Right. Okay. It's, again, sounds like the opposite, the opposite perspective of um, reading verse five is laziness, essentially. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So the, I guess the way I would have understood that is the handful aspect is in contrast to verse five. So you have something in your hands rather than folding your hands and not getting anything. So you've done some work. Mm, and then okay. the second half of it is in contrast to verse four, where it's like you haven't overworked yourself. I see. So you're kind of holding on to both. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I see what you mean. But okay, but I can see what you're saying there, how mm. you can read that differently. So that's very interesting. And this is actually, I mean, I'm glad we have this discussion because this is a common problem in reading Ecclesiastes is yeah. that these verses can have, some verses can have, because there are these small vignettes yeah. that don't have much context. Yeah. Um, you can sometimes they are just radically different uh, readings of it, and we'll we'll see that. And when we look at particularly twelve one to eight, mm. like my word, some of the thi- some of the different ways of reading his things, they're still getting to the same point, but yo, he would be getting there from a very different way <laughs> than yeah. than what say the ESV has to say. Yeah. Okay, so then we have um, seven to thirteen. Something else elusive seven, under the sun. Seven to twelve. Yeah, seven to ten. Uh, uh, twelve actually. Sorry, not thirteen. Um, where you have this idea of like I'm I'm toiling after stuff, but I have no one to share it with, and then he goes on to say, "Well, it's better it's better to have someone to share it with to share your life with, yeah. and then not have to get caught together." Um, and then thirteen to the end of chapter four is a great a great little very short example, and and you can interpret the story that he's considering very differently. But one way to take the story is you have this poor person um, who's in a kingdom that has a foolish old king. 
Um, and so presumably it's not like a great place to be in, right? Like it's they have, he no longer cares about his people or whatever. So then the mm. poor person moves up in the ranks and he eventually becomes elected the king. It's like, yeah, great. You would expect him to know how to treat his people better because he's been there. Mm. And then actually in the end, he's just, um, he ends up being just like the king that he replaced. Um, and so you would think, oh, this person is going to save us from this bad situation. And in fact, we're no better off than, than we would than we were otherwise. Yeah. Um, there's different, there's very different ways of interpreting that. But I think a lot of them get towards the same kind of idea. It's some, there's disagreement about whether there's three people in view versus two people or yeah. whether the king was the young person. And so it's like you're, you're doing like a flashback situation in it. Um, I seem to think that there's a, an article out there think is by a guy named Lavoie. Um, it's in French and I can't speak French, so I haven't read the article. <laughs> but um, I think in that article, the, the gist of it is that he comes up with 13 possible readings of the story. 13? 13. Of just this one of these? It's four verses. Four or five verses. verses. My word. Four ver 13, 14, 15, 16. Four verses. <laughs> wow. That's, um, that's pretty impressive. Good job. I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, th I still think the, the, <clears throat> the main idea of the kind of moral of the story is relatively easy to pick out that there's a constant change of power and um, it doesn't seem to be getting better, right? Yeah. And you can think, I mean, we do this today where we think, oh, if we elect this person in, everything's going to be better. Mm. Yeah. And then nothing's different from the perspective we can see, right? Yeah. Um, and so then we're all disappointed. And it's just like the fool going after their heart, being like putting all their eggs in that basket and hoping that this is what's going to make the difference. Yeah. And then it doesn't. And then, so then we just wait and then we don't learn. And so then in four years time, when the next election comes along, we're like, we'll put this person in power and it's going to be better. And it's, like, it's going to work. Yeah, yeah. now exactly. Okay. And it's like, okay, well, that's just unfortunately not how it's going to happen. It's just this never ending line of the next one to take over. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so far I think we're seeing, I think we can see sort of how unrest and um, going after your heart fills in. From uh, five and six, it's actually even easier. Maybe five, maybe the first bit of five, not so much. But um, the so the first bit of five is is quite interesting because it's talking about someone going to the temple and then um, or to the house of God. But we can assume that's the temple, and um, he's he's uh, cautioning against making rash sacrifices. Where the idea was that you would make that you could make a vow to God in the form of a sacrifice, and then um, you were supposed to fulfill that vow, right? Yeah, and in order to make yourself look good or to look better or to be more impressive, you could make grand promises. You could say, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do that. And so we see this kind of, some of to some degree, this is counteracted um, by, uh, you get like these laws in the last chapter of Leviticus where they're, um, they, they don't allow you to overestimate things. You have to like estimate it according to things to, so to prevent this sort of thing from happening. But I mean, the same thing can continue happening, right? The fool trying to make himself look better speaks a lot. He says, oh, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do these great things. It's not necessarily he's promising lots of things. It could be he's just promising big things. Mm. Um, and then he's never able to fulfill, fulfill them. Um, and so, again, we have this lack of, like, actual achievement and rest that we're getting in there. Yeah. Um, and we see the same, interestingly, uh, we see the same sentiment at the end of chapter 6, um, where he says, whatever has come, ha come to be has already been named, and it is known what a man is. And that he's able to, uh, he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more Hevel. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his Hevel-filled life, which passes like a shadow? For who can tell him what will be after him under the sun? Mm. So we have that 
the same emphasis there being drawn out um, where it's like in different contexts, presumably, right? Like the person at the end of chapter six is pres- presumably like making grand claims about what he, his dreams and so on to his friends. He's like, this is what I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to do. Um, yeah. You know, I'm going to leave this lasting legacy. I'm going to change the world. Um, whereas the person in yeah. the beginning of chapter five is very like, God, I promise you, if you do this, then I will sell my whole family to the temple and I'll like, you know, like do all these crazy things. And it's like, just relax, bro. Like that's not, <laughs> yeah. that's not the way to do this. Yeah. In both cases, there's a sense that it's not going to deliver. It's not going to, exactly. Um, so in five verse six, five verse six or five verse seven, depends if you're reading the Hebrew or the English. Yeah. This is one of those. Let's annoying. do the English. Let's do the English. Well, right. then you're going to have to tell me what verse this is. Uh, so five verse seven is the end of the, that's it, that scene. Um, Cool. I'm just working from my own translation mm-hmm. from the Hebrew, and I just stuck with their numbers. Um, so um, it says, on account of many dreams, hevels, um, mists, and many words. This idea of there being like these these grand dreams, and in fact, Ben Sirah, who is um, very possibly writing around a similar sort of time to um, the author of Ecclesiastes. Is quite critical of of dreams. Obviously, there's there's a place for it, say in the Old Testament, where God is the one who's appearing yes, to right. his chosen messenger in a dream. So there are exceptions, but in general, he's like he's quite skeptical of dreams. It's like, yeah, you might just find that um, with all these with all these dreams, with all these grand plans that you've got, it just ends up being more work, mm-hmm. and it's not really worth the effort. Um, yeah, you can, I mean, I, I'm sure we've all met people like this who are like overcome with the, a great idea, like, and then another great idea, and another great idea, and another great idea, but they never like put the effort or thought into like, okay, but how do I actually like materialize this thing? And like, yeah. what's the potential cost of this idea, you know? And yeah, yeah, you end up saying yes to everything and yeah. in effect saying no to them all. Exactly. Um, so it, it doesn't end up amounting to much. Um, and similarly, in, in at the end of chapter six, um, where there are many words, there's a great deal that's elusive. What advantage is there for humanity? And in sharing the sentiment, he's, I mean, he already sounds a little bit kind of like, that's not going to amount to much. You can say all the things, it's not necessarily going to amount to much. But I think the point is driven home. I think we'll explore this more um, in the next episode. But um, this last little bit of chapter six actually links up quite strongly with what's going to come in chapter seven. Mm. And in chapter seven, he's going to throw all sorts of shade on people who call themselves wise and actually mm-hmm. their efforts don't get anywhere either. Mm. Um, it's all elusive. <laughs> the, all these benefits that are promised on the other end of it and you can put on this effort, you can say all the things, the benefits elusive. Mm. Cool. So if, if we keep moving on, um, we'll see, and people might notice the pattern that I'm going to be moving towards here, but uh, we can see five verse, I would say five verse eight to 12 is a is an interesting scene where he talks about um, oppression again, where high officials oppress lower people that they're over. Um, but he points to the, he, he kind of, he says like, don't be surprised by that because they're, they're not really looking out for you. They're more looking out for like how they look in front of their boss, right? So you, this is like your, your manager that like commits to a, uh, or an example of modern day thing, a manager who commits to their manager about like a completely unrealistic deadline because it looks really good. Um, to say, oh yeah, we can do that in three weeks. Whereas re- mm. in reality, it's going to take like two months um, or three weeks of absolute torture and like over overwork and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So don't be um, don't be surprised by that because like that's uh, they're not looking looking after that. Now there's a bit of com- 
interesting interpretation about like what he says in verse nine about a king committed to cultivated fields. I'm not going to get into that. Like it's uh, it's tricky. It could go either way. Um, it could yeah possibly go a third way, which I'm more inclined towards. Oh, uh, what's the third way? A prophet is the king. Prophet is the okay. Interesting. Um, so for, I mean for context, for um, oh yeah, sorry. Just just a quick drive by that. Yeah. Usually it's divided between is the king. Um, a guarantor of profit, oh, so yeah, or a guarantor of of provision, or is he um, a co-conspirator? Mm-hmm. Is it that there's injustice because um, of these dodgy officials? But don't worry, the one who's at the top, the king is at the top, will be the guarantor that everything will be okay. Yeah, yeah. Or is it that um, the king is the lead culprit? That mm. Um, the buck stops with him, but actually he's pretty bad too. Mm. Um, again, Stuart Weeks um, <laughs> comes up with a really interesting reading that the problem is that actually we, we should expect um, a well-regulated line of officials to to get things right. We should expect there to be justice. The problem is that profit is the king. It's, uh, not, okay. it's not somebody who's going to ensure just order that's sitting on the throne. It's they're all the, pursuing that the pursuit of profit, and when profit is the king, when profit is driving and calling the shots, then everything else is going to go with it. And that fits really nicely then into ten to twelve, where he then goes into that explicitly says, "He who loves money will not be satisfied with his money, nor he who loves wealth his income." Um, and he says, "You know, what advantage has the owner um, but to see it with their eyes?" You know? mm. um, and so he's like, "That's again. I mean, that's the classic example. I think we would even use today, where it's like." People, you know, you meet people who like dream of being rich and it's like, okay, but now what, like, we know that when you get there, when you get to whatever the number is that you consider to be rich, at that point, you're just going to want to be more rich. Mm. And like, yeah. what, like, what are you getting? Like, what's happening, right? Again, um, it's the perspective of chapter two. Totally. Again, he says, sweet is the sleep of a servant, whether he eats a little or a lot, but one who is abundantly wealthy, again, he can't sleep at night. Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah. too worried about 100%. his money. Yeah. And then, so that is par- in parallel to, again, the next section in, uh, the, pr- the next last section in chapter six. So if we look at six verse seven to six verse nine, we'll see kind of sort of the other way around of it. So all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite, appetite is not satisfied. Um, what advantage has the wise man over the fool? Um, and then he says in verse nine, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is a vanity and a, sorry, a hevel <laughs> and a striving after wind. Um, same idea, right? Like, it's better to have some stuff in front of you than to keep looking for the next thing, for more money, for more wealth, for more, I don't know, houses to sell or to do whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, cool. So then, uh, moving on, we see, uh, okay, so if it's not clear at this point, I'm building a Kaizen. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I think we'll find a very pleasant surprise if we, when, once we get to the center. Okay, but uh, so we're, we're two away from the center. So the next one is uh, five is 13 to 17. I was wondering why you weren't going in order. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm wanting to say, but the next one is. <laughs> yeah, I've always, um, yeah, the when writing about Ecclesiastes, I've written, I've tried to write a few different times, you know, just like get my thoughts down. And I've always struggled with how to write about chiasms. Because mm. it's like, do I want to end on the center bit, which is sort of the pivot around the whole thing? Mm. Or do I want to look at the first half, look at the pivot, and then like read out the second half. And it, I've mm. never found a good way to do it. Yeah. So, no, sure. Um, 
For what it's worth, I'm more inclined towards the first option. Yeah. Build in towards the center, but... Okay. Um, okay, so in seven... Uh, sorry, in five, verse 13 to 17, we see a, a really sad example of someone who hoards a bunch of riches and then to the detriment of their owner and mm. who ultimately loses them. And it's just like... That's just, yeah. I mean, absolutely devastating for the person who pursues like follows their heart right it's just like i'm following my heart so i should feel better because i have the things that i pursued i i wanted to pursue and yet i feel terrible mm. and then not only that but after i've done that after i've just been feeling terrible i lost them and feel terrible because of that it's just like i can't win yeah. like it's just a this is like the, i would say this is pretty much like the the absolute like if the absolute worst case of someone um who wants to follow their heart and it's like are you kidding me mm. um they lose all the sleep for it and then find that yeah yeah and that's um compared to uh six verse one to six uh where we see a pretty similar situation of um a lot of uh riches held and no ability to enjoy them mm. right and so it's like i have all these things i have all these children and so on but i just i can't can't uh, I can't enjoy them and and so he says um, it is better a stillborn child is better off than this person right because at least he hasn't had to deal with this idea at least when you're working towards hope towards something that you think is going to be the answer there's some kind of excitement mm. and then the, it's devastating after that right but the stillborn child just doesn't have to go through that entire roller coaster ride of of mm. of just utter despair <laughs> yeah um, I mean, yeah, it's just really, it's an extreme example, right? An extreme parallel that he draws. But like, man, I can see you, the point he's making. Yeah, if you if you went your entire life thinking that when you finally get this thing, you'll be happy, mm. and then you get it, and there's not enough time left to, to pivot, and you've realized it's actually just empty mm. and painful. Yeah. I can't imagine what that must be like that's just like i mean that's midlife crisis to the nth degree kind of thing you know what i mean okay so so now we're moving in and these are all i think pretty clear examples of following the way of the fool or following your heart or doing things that are like instinctive maybe that might make you look better or might make you feel better but none of which really work out mm. right so we're seeing um unrest come in lots of different ways now and in more detail than the short survey that we got at the beginning of chapter two mm. And then what do we find at the beginning? In the middle, sorry. 5.18 to the end of chapter 5, he says, Behold, what I, have, I have, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his, in his heart. Right? I mean, that's the exact conclusion that he recommended to us in chapter three, mm. which is that we look to God to give us enjoyment in our toil. And he's like, this is the best. I mean, you can try your best to toil for the desires of your heart and be better off. It's just not going to work. Like, yeah. I, this sounds like a cop out, but it's like, this is the only thing you can't. The other way isn't a viable option. It's not going to work. Mm. Yeah, sure. So yeah, that's, uh, I would say, once we kind of unpack it like that, I think it can't, it's pretty clear how all of these things fit together within that broader theme of pursuing your heart, that failing, you know, you experiencing constant unrest, and then him just saying, 
like we have to we have to do this with God. I, I think we we start to see some of his things where every now and then he'll just throw in a recommendation, mm-hmm. right? But then he he has like a sometimes there'll be a passage where he has like his he clearly articulates his vision. So that that we have here in five eighteen to to the end of chapter five. But we saw lots of things before, right? Like when talking about the fool of the temple, he was like, don't don't do that. That's a mm. really bad idea. Like it's going to come to ruin. Like yeah. just don't do that, right? Or um, he was talking about the uh, um, the thing that apparently gets quoted at uh, weddings a lot, where it says a cord of three strands is not easily broken or whatever, right? I never really understood that. <laughs> Why is it three? Um, I, I don't know. That's a great <laughs> question. I mean, I think it's just... No, yeah, that's a great question, actually. Let me... <laughs> I've, never, I've never got that. Like, he's like, you can't do it alone. Rather do it together. And then suddenly there's a third wheel. Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's a... Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I, <laughs> I have no idea. I, the general point is straightforward enough, but... <laughs> yeah, what's he getting at? Yeah, why does he use that example? Maybe it was a saying that they had... Um, in 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 the day and he's just sort of pointing to it as like there's the more the merrier kind of thing yeah maybe. i don't know maybe uh but yeah so at the, at the moment it looks like if someone overpowers the one then the second will stand alongside him and then all three of them the two friends and the one who was doing the overpowering so like tied together yeah yep. i don't think that's what's being said i don't think that's what's saying yeah but <laughs> i don't know it's very odd to me anyway um, so yeah, he does every now and then throw out these like pieces of advice where he's like, "Look, if you're uh, if you're not overcome with this desire, it's it's a purely negative thing. So if you're not overcome with the desire to better yourself by following the desires of your heart, then there will be these other opportunities for you to um, sort of live well, mm. right? So if you're if you're not overcome with stroiling, uh, toiling." Um, or competing with other people or doing these other things and you, you kind of have a, more, a greater freedom to like enjoy time with them and work with them even though you maybe won't become as rich by yourself you mm. know i mean we kind of see this sometimes when when you play a board game with your friends as a trivial matter right you play a board game with your friends like you can be ho- overly competitive and yeah. kind of ruin the night for yourself and for everyone else yeah. or you can play the game and have fun and recognize that this is a thing that we're doing together and enjoy yeah. that right yeah um yeah, uh, and so being a once we once he um, removes or like has argued against a particular way of seeing something, uh, you know the the counterexamples rather to a particular way of seeing happiness, he's able to give these like little points of like freedom that come out of that better ways to look at things, even if they're not like his final point, which he will typically mm-hmm. highlight it in, in a particular verse, like we see in five verse eighteen. Yeah, but yeah, that's uh that's this one. I don't know if you have any thoughts or. Any more thoughts, rather? No, I'm. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out into the next section. <laughs> I mean, li- like we, like we've seen that. Um, don't that don't follow your desi- the designs of your heart, Matt. You gotta you gotta rest content with what you have now. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. What were you gonna say? No, we've seen already that um, that chapter six. Is already sort of leaning into chapter seven. Mm-hmm. Um, that some of the some of the key words that I use there are gonna, and th- this seems to be like um, part of what Kohelet does. Um, that even with the chiastic structure that you that you've highlighted, um, he's he mentions there in verse um, probably verse nineteen the wealth and possessions. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's going to talk about that in the very next section as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
God gives wealth, possessions, and honor. Um, so there, there's sort of this the, this kind of constant pushing forward mm. that he's going to mention something and then carry on the conversation even while weaving it in mm. all these different ways. Yeah, it's, he knows where he's going to go. Yeah, yeah, I do just have one question quickly mm. um, as we sort of tie this one together. Where did polysemy fall into this? Oh, <laughs> yes, we mentioned that at the beginning, didn't we? Yeah. Um, for, uh, for, just for a quick recap, we mentioned this in the Proverbs episode, but what did we mean by polysemy? Oh, yeah. So we mean the basic idea is that you have a bunch of little pieces, right? Each of which has like a, a wide range of ways that you can take it, mm. right? And then when they are brought together in a particular way, they kind of highlight one of those ways in the in their organization together, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's a few of these passages which I could see maybe if they was worded slightly differently, but the example was the same. They could be used in other places um, to discuss the limitations of uh, wisdom. Mm. So a great example would be like um, the idea of oppression and you know wickedness being in the place of righteousness, right? Like that. That that's a common theme that will come up later about one person having um, power over another to their even being able to send them to their death, mm. right? And, and he highlights that, um, and, and he raises that notion of the king later, about the king's ultimate power and um, over life and death and so on, in chapter 8. And uh, there, however, he's talking about how the wise person can sort of navigate those situations, how he can use wisdom to navigate. Whereas here, he's using it as an example of people the people pursuing profit and the implications that have for, for, their, for their appetite. Mm. Um, even, I mean, even as something as simple as, you know, 6 verse 8, he'll say, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what poor man, and so there you're like, oh, that sounds very much like the benefit of wisdom over folly, which is, he's not talking about here. He's talking about, you know, the desire of one's heart. Mm. But here he's kind of, he's mentioning it in passing because he's sort of saying, and, uh, and what about the, he's trying to get to, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living, right? So like, mm. what is his, what does he have? Like, what's the benefit? Um, and he's, he's tying it under the idea of, um, everything, all toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. So, mm. like, no matter how wise you are, you're still going to have to toil for the stuff over your mouth and you're never going to be satisfied, right? Yeah. But the exact thing of wisdom versus folly is going to be used in the next two sections repeatedly. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of these, not all, but a lot of these examples um, could, be, could have been used uh, in the later sections. Mm. But because of the particular things he's drawn out from them, and connected them with, we are we're we're given an overall sort of mosaic of the underscoring the futility or the the, the silliness of finding happiness and being better off by pursuing your heart. Mm. The elusiveness of happiness. Yeah, the elusiveness of happiness. Um, that is so much more satisfying. <laughs> yeah, um, especially like just thinking about the way that he then weaves things together. That we've got this. Um, string of stories that are kind of tied together to make a particular point. But the fact that there's um, the possibility of going that way, which he's going to do later. Mm, mm. Then when he comes back around to a story that actually... So, I mean, in um, chapter four, we've got that strange story of the king and the and the, and the the poor youth. Yeah. And then we come back in chapter nine, there seems to be a similar story. Mm. That sort of has you thinking... Yeah. Have I seen this before? Yeah, right. Um, but bringing out a slightly different point there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's I, it's been a, tr I, I think, um, like, I have sort of, you know, there's a lot of difficulty in, in trying to make sense of the overarching 
structure of Ecclesiastes, I think largely because of this feature that the vignettes seem to be pretty general and, and, and touching on the same, the, the same vignettes seem to come back, they come, he comes back to them, but he uses them differently and it's like, what's the difference? And so I think that's sort of what obscures a bit the structure that we've been identifying and makes it difficult for commentators to fully grok. I think there's a lot more agreement in the early books. It's like, when you look at the early bits of the book, it's like, okay, we kind of get the same structure, but then it's sort of un people unravel as they mm -hmm. go further and further on, especially yeah. when you get to the vignettes. Yeah. But, and so I, I got a sense of the structure, you know, when I was studying it before. Um, but when we discovered the idea of polysemy or polysemy or whatever, um, when doing Proverbs, it clicked. I was like, mm. this is, this is the very notion that makes it like, what's going on in Ecclesiastes. Like, mm. I, I was so excited when we figured it out because I was yeah. like, I have a term for this feature that I, I've only had like a vague intuitive grasp of and now I can like, mm -hmm. I, it's clicked into place and I can describe it cleanly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Great. Well, should we end it there? We should end it there. Thanks for joining us. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe. Hit the notification bell if you're on YouTube. Um, leave us a rating if you're on your podca podcast app. It said that right this time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not podcast. Podcast. Um, well, leave us a good rating. And uh, yeah, we'll see you in the next one.